0: Show Hi folks, this is
1: Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is October the 4th, 2019. This is episode 2524 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday. And that means it is time for an expert counsel Q&A show. I got five expert questions queued up for you today. Here's what I got. I got sizing a well pump and a solar system for an off grid solar well from Sean Mills. This is uh, it actually takes more than a lot of people think to uh, to run a well. So this is a great question. Um, the role of annual gardens in permaculture. There are people that are under, and I guess there are people that really don't know anything about permaculture. And I think that's kind of what Jeff says in this. But there are people that believe that like permaculture is all about growing trees. It has nothing to do with annual production. So, we're going to talk about the role of annual gardens in permaculture with Jeff Lawton today. The care, the maintenance, and above all, the sharpening of garden tools. You know who that would go to? Patrick Rohrman. And a question on cane toads. How dangerous are cane toads or other toads to your dog with Doc Kelly? I have some thoughts on that myself. And what the hell is up with some of the Federal Reserve's recent decisions? that seem to defy logic. Are they actually illogical? John Pugliano will tell you the logic behind them and why they're being done. And then I have had a bunch of questions in the past couple weeks on the Amber Geiger case. And now a bunch of questions and opinions thrown at me about the decision. It was good, it was bad, it was terrible, it was wrong, it was justice against cops or whatever. I'm going to give you the Jack Spirico, no bullshit opinion, not facts, opinion of the Amber Geiger decision. Amber Geiger, for those that don't know, is a Dallas police officer. She's not an ex police officer because, well, they fired her when she was convicted of killing someone by accident, which really is what happened. And, uh, but no one called, it's interesting, no one referred to her in the media as ex police officer, ex Dallas police officer until the day she was convicted. It's odd, like, to me, and I'll tell you why I think that's part of what's going on here. Um, And I'll give you my opinion on this, which is probably going to piss everybody off on all sides because it's based on logic and reason and a lack of emotion and an analysis of law, legal precedent, and the way people should be treated by our court system. Instead of... um, they're all heroes. They're black to blue, or they're all, you know every cop is is a, is a wife beating abusive road pirate, right? Uh, since I don't take either one of those positions when I analyze something like this, and I put my emotions to the side, it usually pisses everybody off because people get emotional about something it's pretty much a fact based decision. I'll tell you why I think the the conviction is probably okay, and when it goes along with the sentence, it's probably about right. All right. So, we'll get to all of that more in just a bit. Before we do, uh, yesterday, you know, I talked about what would happen if everybody did what they most wanted to do. We did a show on basically giving yourself permission to achieve the things that you most want in life and how people block themselves. And that show was really all about understanding, it was really all about the ability to understand. And a lot of the things that we do on this show today are based on understanding things. And understanding is something that is far greater than knowing. And so my quote of the day to you is by Albert Einstein, who at one time said, any fool can know. The point is to understand. Uh, One time recently I was told by somebody who just trusted the powers that be on on a particular issue. And I said, well, explain it. And they couldn't. I said, well, then why do you believe it? Why do you believe what you can't explain and they said, well, I don't know the math behind relativity, but I believe it. And my response is, well, actually, the math behind relativity, once the equation's drawn out, is not hard. E equals mc squared is not hard. And understanding it, once it's been developed, is not hard. I learned the, the base math behind relativity in physics in 11th grade in high school. So... The whole point of understanding relativity is that it can be understood. And it, you do not have to be Einstein's level of intelligence to understand it. The genius in the theory of relativity was not in understanding it initially. It was developing it and understanding it before it was. Understanding that which was not known, not only by you, but by anybody. That's true genius. And there's a lesson in understanding there with a story that I'd like to tell you today. And also, how we make assumptions. And this is going to tie into my piece on Amber Geiger when I get to it. So one time, there was a little boy. And this little boy lived on a farm with his dad. And no, they didn't have tomatoes or potatoes that talked to him or something like that. It's not that kind of story. And across the street, there was another farm. And the farmer that lived there was named Farmer Brown. And one day, the farmers all around cleared out all their brush piles and cut down all the extra branches and stuff like that, and they piled them up. It just was the time of year to clear out things along fence lines and stuff like that. They piled up all these brush piles. And it wasn't long after that in the spring that a little bird came to one of the brush piles right out by the road and... She built a nest. And the little boy was excited. He was going to watch this bird's nest develop and the babies be born and everything. And a couple of days later, Farmer Brown found the nest and he tore the nest out of the pile of brush and destroyed it. And the little boy saw it. He ran over and He was pretty distraught. He went home. He told his dad, Farmer Brown, you know, got rid of the nest. And the old man, you know, looks at the kid and says... Farmer Brown is smart. There must be a reason. Just trust. And the boy's like, okay. Well, all of a the bird starts building the nest again. And again, Farmer Brown destroys the nest. The little boy runs home with his dad and says, Farmer Brown destroyed the nest again. This poor bird. And the father says, Farmer Brown's pretty smart. Trust Farmer Brown. The little boy doesn't understand what's going on. And finally the bird goes off and builds a nest somewhere else. The little boy doesn't know where and there's no more bird. And he's pretty sad about this because he was excited. He was going to see this bird have babies. About a week later, the county comes around, the county workers, all these brush piles that the farmers set up. And they set them on fire and they burn them in a controlled burn. And they watch them burn to the ground. And then they just go on about their way. And it just turns out that You know, this little boy and his dad had moved to this new area and set up a farm. They had never been there before, and they didn't know that that's what happened every year. That every year, the farmers would put out their brush piles, and the county would come around and take care of burning the brush piles for them. little boy runs home and says, Daddy, the county came and burned the brush piles. That's what Farmer Brown was doing. And his dad said, See, I told you, I I met Farmer Brown. Farmer Brown knows what's up. Sometimes you have to trust in the wisdom of other people. Okay, you guys think you learned the lesson of that story. And if you've never heard me tell the lesson in that story, you're about to learn the real lesson in that story. How many of you thought Farmer Brown was an old man? How many of you thought Farmer Brown was an old man? In the story I just told you, I called the boy's father the old man. I never said anything about Farmer Brown that would indicate that he was an old man. He could have been 25 years old. He could have been 21 years old. You still haven't learned your lesson, have you? How many of you assumed Farmer Brown was a man? Could Farmer Brown have been a woman? See, we make assumptions based on our preconceived ideas of things. The little boy made an assumption that it must be terrible to tear the nest out of the brush pile. Farmer Brown, bright young woman that she was, had grown up there on her father's farm. And now was running her own farm. And she knew that if she left that mother bird, build that nest in that brush pile, that that bird would have been to the point of having laid her eggs and having sit on them when it would be destroyed. And if the nest was taken away from her, she would eventually go find another place to nest. And her babies wouldn't be killed by the fire. Little boy learned not to make assumptions. Maybe if he had just gone and asked that young lady, Farmer Brown, she would have told him. You've learned not to make assumptions, because in my story, you thought Farmer Brown was an old man, and she wasn't. She was a young woman. We have to be careful with assumptions. There is the old saying about making an ass out of you and me, but sometimes when you make assumptions, it's not about making an ass out of anything. You're just wrong, and it leads to dangerous additional decisions. With that, let's go ahead and jump into our first question for an expert council member today. This is on sizing a well pump in a solar system for an off-grid solar well.
2: Hey, TSP listeners. This is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar, and today I've got an expert council question from We. This is from Tom. Tom says, I have an older well that the pump is seized on. I would like to have the well run completely off solar. What's the best path to take here? Buying a whole solar kit with pump or building a solar array that will run a regular well pump? Tom, I'm going to answer this question assuming that you have a shallow well uh, and then give an option that could be combined with the first part if you have a deep well. Uh, If you're doing this work yourself, that leads me to believe that you've got a shallow well, uh, because a deep well is something replacing a submersible pump in a, in a deep well is, uh, is a job and it's not something that most DIYers can handle. Uh, but if that's what you've got, or if someone else has a similar situation, I am going to throw a little, uh, answer option there on the end, uh, that, that I would personally do if I were in, in the situation. So, um, If you want to run water or running water off of solar, I would get a shallow well pump and design a full on-grid system to run it with panels, charge controller, battery bank, and inverter. So just like if I was going to, I say on-grid, I mean off-grid, I would design a full system to give me 120 volts. Uh, That way I can get a cheap, easy to replace well pump um, and, and use that right off of the inverter. Um, you want to be sure that the, to research the startup surge of the pump and oversize your inverter a little bit, uh, a half horsepower pump. Uh, I've seen some that draw about a thousand Watts to run and 2200 during startup. That's kind of typical. I have seen some with lower numbers than that. I've seen some that draw, you know, closer to 700 running and about 1500, uh, on startup. So it might be worth your time to find one with a lower draw. Uh, now, I want to make sure you've got plenty of drawdown in your pressure tanks. Now, drawdown is the amount of water you can pull out of your pressure tank before you flip your switch, your pressure switch that turns the pump back on. So on all these uh, systems, even if you've got multiple pressure tanks put together, you've got a master pressure tank, and you've got a, a pressure switch on that. And when that switch goes down to, say, 30 PSI, then it's going to kick your well pump on. It's going to pressurize, pressurize, pressurize. When it gets up to, say, 50, it's going to turn your pump off. Okay, so the amount of water you can get out of your system in between 30 and 50, or maybe you've got it set 60 and 40, whatever, whatever from your on into your off, whatever that gap is, how much water you can get out, it's important that you've got a lot of water there. And that means you might take a look at adding additional Uh, pressure tanks Uh, we've got multiple pressure tanks at our off-grid place for that exact reason what this does it gives you a water battery so to speak to get you through low light times at our off-grid house we turn the breaker to the pump off when we go to bed and we turn it back on when the Sun is out the next day Uh, this prevents a nighttime toilet flush from kicking our pressure switch on you know we don't need 50 50 PSI to flush the toilet uh we don't need fifty psi even to take a shower and brush our teeth in the morning. Uh but but you know, what we don't want is we don't want batteries that might already be low to be drawn down from even more just to go from thirty to fifty psi in the middle of the night because we were right on the edge. Uh, so we always would turn that that breaker off so we never had to run into that problem. Um you look for some low gallon per minute uh, shower heads and other fixtures uh, this is going to help you out. You want to make sure if you're running the system off of solar just like if we were running the house off of solar we look for ways to reduce the use because that you know from a cost-effective standpoint that's what really carries the weight is reducing rather than just say we're going to do everything the same we're just going to do it off of solar now. Well that's going to cost you a lot of money to do it that way. Um, so, if you all right so so that's kind of the system. I would do a just a standard shallow well pump, solar panels, charge controller, batteries, inverter, wire going from the inverter to the pump, pressure switch, multiple pressure tanks that's the system now, if I've got a deep well pump that's going to change a little bit. Uh, you can get a submersible well pump you're talking about changing your pump that's why I'm talking about this. You can get a submersible well pump. That will push up to a 375 foot column of water for under 300 watts and you just wire it directly to the pump. Uh, Those are on the market. They're available. They are pricey um, and you're not going to get a whole lot of flow, particularly if you're trying to pressurize it. So what I would do is I would get that submersible pump and then I would fill up a cistern that's either you know on the shady side of my house and painted or some other way protected from direct sunlight or maybe even one of those bladders that you put in the crawl space uh... and so what i'm looking to do there is i'm looking to take the solar power convert it directly to uh... pushing water into the cistern but not pressurizing it and then from that point that system i just described well now instead of going into a shallow well we just go into the cistern and it works exactly the same Um, Alternatively, you could put that together with a SureFlow on-demand pump that runs on 12-volt, and then you wouldn't even necessarily need the pressure tanks. Um, You would have a set of panels running the big pump pump, and another set of panels for a 12-volt battery bank that the SureFlow pump was tied right to. And in that situation, I'm not worried about running the, the pump overnight because, you know you're you're probably going to be generating a lot more electricity on that system than than the actual uh, sure flow is going to need so that would be another option so you could take the the deep well pump combine it with the low horsepower uh, shallow well pump or just go straight 12 volt all the way with a sure flow pump well tom i hope that answers your question uh, if you've got anything that you want to uh get some uh deeper uh discussion on you can email me at hackmysolar at gmail.com. uh and guys keep on getting those questions in the jack jack at the survival podcast.com. he'll get them over to me and i will get them answered for you well thanks everyone have a great day
1: So my addition here, that whenever you have a well, well pump, all that, you probably have a pump house, Um, especially any climate where it can freeze. And usually if we're doing lots of solar, we're in climates that can freeze. It's just generally the case because if we're doing lots of solar, running air conditioning is difficult. So to me, in that well house, I would just allocate the money to have a small, backup inverter generator something like the sportsman generator that steven harris and i recommend is a few hundred dollars when it goes on sale actually it's like 150 dollars when it goes on sale 800 watts and uh, a good high quality battery charger and that way if you need water when your power is low you just dump power into the batteries and I'm not talking about making it all sophisticated where the thing's like, oh, the batteries are under half charge the generator has to turn itself on and stuff like that. That's a much more complicated, much more expensive system. I'm talking about walking out there going, charge it up when you need to. Because it sucks when you need water and you don't have it. And things happen where solar doesn't quite give you what you expected. So that would be my one addition to that. Next up, we have a question for Jeff Lawton on the role of annual gardens in permaculture.
3: Hi. Jeff Lawton coming to you here from Australia and I have someone here who 's got a question about um, a lot of people feel permaculture is only for growing perennials and um, what 's the role of annual gardens uh, and their quick production in permaculture and um, and uh, what makes a permaculture annual garden different from an organic garden and and what are my top crops well if someone only thinks that permaculture is about growing annual, perennial gardens, sorry, um, then they really don't know anything about permaculture. There's always been annual gardens in permaculture. We call it zone one, home garden. Um, it's a kitchen garden. Um, it's where you grow all the fast crops and quick crops, but there can be perennials in there as well. Um and um, it's always been part of permaculture, it's never been any different. Uh, it's, it's your, uh, you know, close-in production. And also, sometimes your large production out in Zone 2 and Zone 3, you might have cash crops out there of of large crops like potatoes and corn and all those other things. Um, I have a main crop garden that grows large volumes of, of, of carbohydrate and storable crops. And, of course, if you're in a cold climate, you need large crops of storable crops to get you through winter. Um, annual gardens are um, very, very diverse, extremely diverse. The most diverse. the The zone one garden is the most diverse part of a permaculture system. Um, they're incredibly different to uh, um, agriculture. Um, there's um, there's really uh, no different. And and organic gardens. Well, they could be always. We're always organic and. Um, organic gardens could be a lot simpler um, without the same diversity. Um, so um, really there's no difference between an organic garden and a permaculture annual garden because they're both organic. So you can probably some called organic. It's permaculture design It's designed to supply the needs of the gardener and uh, to plant uh, a great diversity of interactive crops that don't need any um, outside um, intervention from pesticides or fungicides or herbicides, hardly any natural variations of that because it's so diverse. It's like a little ecosystem to itself. And, and there can be perennials in our annual garden. So we have perennials in amongst it as well. So, um, it's, um, it's more a, about specific design. Um, and, um, not necessarily oversupplying, uh but supplying the need to the gardener and and their family as the priority one. Um, they're uh, usually self-fertilizing, and all of the waste goes back into uh, composts and mulches. Um, there's a minimum amount of work, um, a maximum amount of nutrition, and uh, a maximum amount of, of, of soil fertility creation and stability. Um, they can look quite different to a standard organic garden, which may... St- be quite simple and and a row crop type system where permaculture gardens tend to be more patterned, um, particularly around the shape of the landscape and the continuum of form of the landscape. Um, They'll always be closer to the house for maximum efficiency of use. So an organic garden might be a long way away from uh, where the gardener lives or or the uh, main human interaction, where uh, a permaculture garden is going to be most efficiently placed um, very close to the um, human interaction, simply for a, um, a an efficiency time relationship. Um, now, uh, what um, my top crops for the annual garden? Um, well, I think the top crops for any permaculture annual garden is the crops that the gardener wants to eat. Um, so, whoever whoever gardens, um, so. I have a garden that's got a lot of rocket and a lot of lettuce and um, we, we, we grow some really nice variations of uh, daikon radish, purple daikon radish, I mean they're all great um, we grow good capskins in summer and eggplants uh, and cucumbers, ok- okra um, and right at the moment we have uh, some wonderful peas we're coming to the end of winter We've got some great snap peas and some great um, snow peas. Um, we have a lot of medicinals because we have um, medicinal herbs as well. And a lot of those aren't actually, they're they're perennial. Um, and uh, I have Brahmi and um, I have toothache plant, which I think is a wonderful uh, medicinal. And uh, I have a uh, goda cola. And and sheep sorrel is a wild volunteer, which is, uh, they're all in the top ten of herbs. Of course we have comfrey um, as uh, part of the herbs in the garden. Um, My garden has bananas around the outside, four banana circles at the top and a a nutrient-dense banana circle at the bottom. Um, We have perennial mint all the way through. Um, uh, We also have uh, turmeric around the edges. Um, i have, uh, I actually have um quite a lot of uh, well i have a large ish row of of uh, asparagus, which is a perennial as well while we have tomatoes and, and all the others it's pretty hard to say what's my favorite obviously um English descent, so I like potatoes I don't grow so many potatoes in the in the in the kitchen garden. I grow them in the main crop garden because they take a lot of space and you disrupt the whole garden in a bed when you dig them all up. Uh, We're coming to the end of our potato period now, but that's main crops. And if that gives you an idea, that's the difference. We have uh, have a a main crop of of garlic, um, potatoes, um, cabbages for kimchi um, and... um, um, carrots at the moment. That's the main thing out there in the main crop. And then we're about to switch into summer main crop, which is corn and pumpkin and um, larger bulk crops. Watermelons going in right now as we approach our summer. The annual garden's extremely diverse. Ex- extremely diverse. Um, and there's um, there's always a mixture of leaf- leafy greens going through, um, as well as different. Uh, particular fruit and crops. Tomatoes are coming on strong right now as we go towards our summer. There you go.
1: So this is something that it's always perplexed me, um, that people that actually look at permaculture for more than 10 seconds and and, and more than just hear the word thing it. I will admit that, you know, 12 years ago-ish, I pretty much had only heard the word permaculture. And when I first heard about permaculture, I thought, well, that means planting an apple tree instead of corn plants. I I thought that myself, but it took me about 37 seconds of looking at permaculture to go, oh, okay. And I'm not going to pretend that I understood it fully, but I understood that it wasn't only permanent crops. It was permanent culture. In fact, people always say that permaculture comes from the word permanent agriculture. Those are two words together. It doesn't. Um, growing food is a huge part of permaculture but when David Holgram and Bill Mollison conceived of the word and the idea and the concept and the design science it was not permanent agriculture it was permanent culture with humans being the center of that type of culture it was developing a, a completely um, permanent way of living without depleting the systems around you and annual production has always played a key role in that. It was a great answer by Jeff. So even though it's one of those questions you go, huh? I think it's a great question, and so I was happy to send it on to Jeff. Next one I have is a question for Patrick Rohrman on the cleaning, maintenance, and sharpening of garden tools.
4: Hey, guys. This is Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Eric. His question is, what is the proper way to care for garden tools to keep them sharp and prevent rust. Details, I have a very nice pair of pruners and even when I wipe them dry after use, they develop rust on them. And after several years, the blade is starting to get less sharp than I'd like. What would you recommend as the proper way to care for garden tools? I've heard some people make a bucket of oil-soaked sand and bury their tools in that after each use but that sounds icky suggestions eric from michigan hey thanks for the question eric and i've heard the same about oil soaked sand and putting tools in it my main concern with that is if it's a cutting edge tool that sand is going to damage the edge especially over time sand is very abrasive that's why we use it in sandpaper So what do we do to prevent rust how do we take care of our tools my first question be where are you storing these pruners to understand what causes rust rust is oxidation caused by oxygen and moisture corroding the steel so the way to prevent rust is either prevent oxygen from reaching the steel or moisture or both that's why we oil our tools is to put a layer of oil keeps the oxygen away from the steel and moisture as well the problem is when you use the pruners it's uh, removing the oil from the tools and exposing it to moisture and oxygen when you cut down branches they're full of moisture and that's getting on your tools so wiping them down is important and then putting a fresh coat of oil But if you're leaving these pruners in a shed someplace that the steel and the temperature is going to fluctuate um, when that tool gets cold and every morning when uh, dew sets on on things, that tool is being exposed to moisture and it's going to rust. So I would suggest storing your tools um, someplace where it's climate controlled. Not in the garage or in a shed, if you have, uh, if that's an option for you, bringing them inside, putting them in a tool cabinet or somewhere that the climate's going to stay more regulated. The moisture's going to be lower, and that's going to help as well. Sounds like your pruners are already dull, so it'd be good to get them sharpened. Either do it yourself or send them off to somebody that knows how. Um, in my DVD Beyond Razor Sharp. I cover how to sharpen things like pruners and scissors and stuff like that. So if you'd like, you can pick up a copy of Beyond Razor Sharp. Try your hand at uh, sharpening those pruners. The other option you can do, if these are high carbon steel, uh, if they're going to rust a little bit easier, is you can force a patina onto the steel using something like vinegar and What a patina is, is an oxidation layer on the outside of the steel that helps prevent rust. Um, Similar to cold bluing steel, and that's another option too. You could pick up some cold blue and blue them. Um, Being they're pruners, that coating is going to be worn away on the cutting edge over time and so that that's where you need the protection the most so anyways try to keep them dry keep them uh, in a climate controlled place and keep them oiled and they i you shouldn't have as much problem with the rust thanks for the question eric this has been patrick roerman with mt knives you guys have a great weekend
1: I'll just add one thing you can actually store, uh, especially like smaller garden tools and stuff like that, that, that maybe are carbon steel and have a little propensity to rust, um, without really worrying a lot about oil on them, um, is if, like, again, these are going to be smaller tools. If you have like a bin or a vat that you would think of as the place that you would put the oil-soaked sand, um, instead of using sand or oil or anything, what you can use is perlite. Uh, perlite is the puffy white, kind of like almost like a volcanic rock, really, really super lightweight. It looks almost like styrofoam that we mix in the potting soils. And it, I guess there could be a little bit of an abrasion issue. So if you had like a, something that's like knife-like sharp or something, but you know different digging hand tools and stuff. If you set up a like a bin with that like in your storage shed and you put your smaller hand tools in there you'll get literally no rust. And the reason you'll get no rust is that perlite uh, will, you put something damp in perlite and the perlite just pulls the moisture off of it. Uh, you're probably still better off with a light coat of oil on the tool itself, but um, it's going to be very hard for any surface moisture to remain on that tool if it's sitting in perlite. And in fact, even if it's not 100% under the perlite, it's still going to be a very dry environment. Remember, whenever you're working with perlite, you need to use a dust mask. Now, if it's sitting in a bin like that and it's settled and you're just putting tools in and out of it, you don't want to put your dust mask on. But if you're pouring or mixing or working with perlite and you are not using a dust mask, you are really risking your health. Um, it is, again, it, it seems like styrofoam, but it's really a rock. And it's going into your lungs and it's going to get, it's bad. I mean, you're giving yourself a set of black lung like the coal miners you got. You're giving yourself white lung. So please be careful with that stuff. Uh, It's one of those things that people just don't think about. Next, we have a question about dogs and toads for Doc Kelly.
5: Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly here to answer all your furry pet questions. Today's question is from Tom and asks, How dangerous are bufo toads to my dogs? Do I need to take the elimination of toads to a serious level? Details. I just recently relocated to South Florida, and I got a text from a friend that lives in Tampa warning me about these toads. She said that if my dog even licks one, that I need to rinse his mouth out with the hose and rush him to the vet hospital or he will die. I have two dogs. The older one is a 13-year-old Lhasa Opsa and her hunting days are pretty much over. But the boy is about three and is a silky terrier. He is a good boy and will drop something if I tell him to, but he chases down and quite often catches every lizard, squirrel, possum, raccoon, bird, moth, bee, and toad on the property. I wasn't terribly concerned at first, but he is getting better at chasing down the little creatures and I've had to dispose of three large toads so far and there are always baby toads around. So how concerned should I be? Thank you. Tom. Hi, Tom. Bufo toad toxicity depends on the species of toad. Most of the toads we come across in North America are bufos and will have some skin and parotid gland secretions, but the species difference can be a big deal. The Bufo Americanus that you often find in the garden does taste bad when dogs lick it and it can cause salivation, gagging, and even vomiting, but it won't cause heart problems or death. Lots of dogs may catch or lick a toad or two and the smarter of these dogs usually learns to avoid it, although not all of them. The Bad Boy Bufos, which are Bufo Marinus and Bufo alvarius are the ones that can kill. Um, Bufo marinus, aka the cane or marine toad, can be found in Florida, the Gulf Coast, Rio Grande Valley, and possibly other warm, wet places if they've been introduced or migrated there. These are the worst of the two types. Um, The Bufo alvarius, the Colorado River toad, is another closely related toxic toad which lives in the Phoenix metro area, other parts of southern Arizona and California. While not good, it usually isn't as bad as the cane toads. Now, the bufo toad toxin can cause heart and neurologic problems, along with GI issues, Um, some of these severe enough to kill dogs or cats, although dogs tend to catch them more frequently than the cats do. Um, They could get the toxin by licking the toads or picking them up in their mouth. A toad sitting in a water dish could even leave behind enough of the toxin to affect a dog. So the toxicity level is dose dependent. So bigger toads with bigger parotid glands are worse and smaller dogs are obviously are going to be more affected. The worst case scenario would be a little dog that eats a toad or grabs a toad and refuses to drop it for the owner, just holding it in its mouth. So it's getting more and more toxin. It can cause irregular heartbeats pretty quickly. And a little dog, um, even something under you know 20 to 30 pounds might die before you could even get it to the ER. So if you have a dog that grabs one and spits it out, as long as the dog is conscious and not having seizures, you can rinse their mouth out with a hose to try and dilute and get rid of any of the toxin and then get them straight to the ER. There isn't an antidote per se, it's just supportive care to manage and counteract all the side effects of the toxin. So the key is getting them appropriate medical care as soon as possible to help prevent death. So how do you keep these guys out? I mean, some people have found that burying fences around the yard, like you would do for a dog that kept trying to dig out, um, can help. If it not only keeps the dog inside, but prevents the toads from getting into your yard. And so they had the fence buried around 18 inches down below the, their normal fence. And presumably, you have to have a tight enough fencing material, you know, the toads can't just crawl through it and everything, but that can help. And the other option for a dog that is insistent on getting a hold of toads is a basket muzzle whenever they are outside to prevent them from picking them up. Certainly not ideal, but it could be life saving if you have a dog who insists on hunting them. I hope this helped, Tom. And remember, everyone, while I'm a veterinarian, I'm not your veterinarian, and my advice is just intended to give you a ballpark estimate for what your veterinarian may recommend. Thanks, Jack, and I hope everyone has a great toad-free weekend. Bye.
1: So I'll throw a little thing in here. Um, Maybe the problem is a solution here. I'm a little tentative with giving this advice because I have not dealt with dogs and cane toads. Okay, I've dealt with cane toads. And I have dealt with dogs and toads, but not dogs where cane toads are. So my experience is that it's not only smart dogs that learn to leave toads alone. It is pretty much all dogs. I know of firsthand information from only one person of a dog that actually died from this, and it was Doc Bones. And I put Doc Bones in touch with Doc Kelly before this. They had a very small dog, and they live in South Florida, and the dog not only picked up a cane toad once, but somehow developed an attachment to the idea of apparently getting basically dog stoned on the cane toad. So it went for more cane toads and eventually got enough cane toad to kill itself. Um, I have no idea what a cane toad tastes like. I do not want to taste a cane toad, and I do know their toxin is much more severe than the bufo toxin contained in our native North American toads. Um, however, as Doc Kelly said, the native North American toad. So you would need to know what you're doing. You would need to be sure you did not have a cane toad to do this with. Um, but all of my dogs, when they see toads, and I have toads all over my property now, since we've moved in and made our improvements to our toads everywhere here. But they're not cane toads. Our cane toads will not survive our winters, and therefore we don't have them. We have the American uh, toad. And actually, we have two species of American toad here. And the dogs will run after a toad. They get ran to the toad. They look at the toad. They're like, no, I'm not doing that. I wouldn't test this theory, but I have a sneaking suspicion if somebody brought a cane toad to my property, there's a big old cane toad running around here, that Lucy, Charlie, and Max would run up, and that's a toad. Because... Just as many people might have a hard time looking at them, especially cane toads get huge. That's one way you know they're cane toad. But, of course, they start out small. So one, the same reason a lot of humans would look at an American toad and a cane toad side by side of the same size, not the same age, but the same size, and go, I'm not really sure, is the same reason a dog, who's not quite as switched on as a human, would say, a toad's a toad. So, I'm just saying that if you knew you had American toads and you let your dog pick up those American toads, most likely, most dogs, in my experience, it's once or twice and it's whoa, no, 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 no. I know. And if that training is reinforced with no, bad, right? The immediate command, no. Don't do it. Whatever your command is for a dog to stay away from something, especially when you train the dog that that thing is dangerous, then what's going to happen is all toads are bad. So you might look at using some level of training like that, but you really better be 100% sure of the identification of the thing you're doing the training with. Um, Now, I don't know how this would affect people in South Florida, but I have seen one creature that will continuously attempt to eat a toad and keep doing it. However, generally they fail, and I feel terrible for the toads when it happens to them, but it's my ducks. They don't seem to bother toads when a toad's, are, like, just out and about. But when the toads get in their pools, like, you'll see just, just chewing on this, and a duck can't chew a toad. And you all, I always think the poor thing's dead, because it's, like, all flat and just, like, laying there, like, paralyzed. And you pick it up, take it away from the duck, and it just hops away. So I've never seen a duck actually get one down, but I wonder what would happen if they did. Like, do they eat baby toads? Do they have immunity to the American bufo toad? And would there be a problem for waterfowl in South Florida and other parts of the United States where the cane toad has become a problem in an invasive species? I just don't know the answer to that. But I have seen very few things eat a toad. The only creature that I know that makes a living on toads is the hognose snake. The hognose snake eats toads and has immunity to the bufotoxin of the North American toads. Anyway, anyway, there's my little herpetology add-in for that segment. Uh, next up, a question for John Pugliano on uh, what the hell the Fed's doing with all these seemingly ridiculous decisions.
6: Today I have two questions to answer. They're both on the Federal Reserve, and our first question comes from Darren in Missouri. And Darren says, with the stock market near all-time record highs, why did the Federal Reserve cut interest rates today? And he submitted this question a couple weeks ago. So this was in uh, September 18th when the S&P 500 was making a new record high. Okay, so implied in this question is that if things are going so well, why would the Federal Reserve want to cut interest rates and really juice the economy along even more? Well, Darren, I'm recording this answer to you on October 2nd. And the stock market has been very volatile this week, and in fact, it's down about 4% or so off of those record highs. So the first thing I'd say is that the Federal Reserve isn't specifically making monetary policy based on the day-to-day movement of the stock market. Now, I'm not saying that the Federal Reserve isn't worried about fluctuations in the price of the stock market. It's just that they don't care about it so much on a daily or weekly basis. They're looking at it over longer periods of time, you know, definitely over periods of months or periods of years. So that's what they're going to try and adjust their monetary policy for. And what they're shooting for is to have a gradually increasing stock market. They want appreciation over time. And so specifically to answer your question, why did they cut interest rates in September when the market was at an all-time record high? Well, they did that because they're actually walking back the increases that they'd put into place in 2018. You see, during the year of 2018, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates four times a quarter of a percent each time. And so over that year, they raised interest rates by 1%. They did that in anticipation Of the policies that have gone into effect since Trump got elected, the two primary reasons being that he cut corporate taxes, that happened at the end of 2017, and then also his administration has been either rolling back regulations or they've been very lax in enforcing regulations. And so lower taxes, less regulation, that equates to a stimulus in the economy. Since Trump's been elected, they raised interest rates seven times, okay, and four of those occurred in 2018. The thought process there is that we've been in a period for a long time, over 10 years, of substantially lower interest rates. And so while the economy is improving, they're trying to raise the interest rates and bring them up to what they call a neutral rate. The problem with all this is that for the last 18 months or more, Trump has been waging the trade war against China. And that's had an effect to slow down the global economy, and it's also starting to creep into the U.S. economy. And so the Federal Reserve is trying to preempt a slowdown in the U.S. economy by taking away some of those interest rates that they put on last year. And in fact, this cut that happened in September, that was the second one that's taken place this year. And there's a lot of people on Wall Street that think that we have at least two more coming before the year's out. And if the Federal Reserve does cut interest rates two more times at a quarter point each, then they'd have wiped out all the rate increases that they did in 2018. So right now, when you see the Federal Reserve cutting interest rates, it's not so much to stimulate the economy as much as it is to stop their prior policies from squelching the economy. Okay, now our second question is related to that. It comes from John in Moore Park. Hey, shout out to John, by the way. He's always sending in good material. And his question is from an article that was published a couple weeks ago in Business Insider, and it's about the Federal Reserve pumping over $75 billion dollars into the banking system to support overnight loans, and this is what's known as a, as a repo operation. This was really a hot topic a couple weeks ago, but now since the impeachment inquiries are in the headlines, everybody seems to have forgotten about the repo operation. But here's the bottom line on this. And this is very much related to how I just answered Darren's question. But let me just break it down by saying this. At the end of every business day, the bank's books have to balance. You know, all the credits have to equal the debits. And because it can take some time for money to clear and go from one place to another, the banks may not have enough reserve deposits to cover any accounts receivable type loans that they have out there. And so at the end of every business day, they borrow money to make up the difference until they open back up again in the morning. And whenever there's a hiccup or a lack of liquidity in the system, the Federal Reserve will step in with what's called a repo operation where they loan their member banks the money to make up the difference overnight. Now, normally, there's enough liquidity in the system where it doesn't matter and things work just fine. But what's occurred in recent weeks is that there hasn't been enough money floating around the banking system to cover those normal loans. And so, not only has the Federal Reserve had to step in with their repo operation but they've had to do it from anywhere from 50 to 75 to even over 100 billion dollars coming in at night lending that to these member banks now there's been a lot of fear and panic a lot of gloom and doom people have pointed to this and say that the banking system is about to collapse you know, it's going to be an economic meltdown that the US currency is going to lose its reserve currency status uh, you know yada 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 the same gloom and doom things that those kind of people are always saying Well, that's not the case at all. Just like I'd mentioned in Darren's question about how the Federal Reserve is now cutting interest rates because last year they raised interest rates too high. Well, that's what's going on in the banking system right now. Not only did the Federal Reserve raise interest rates too high in 2018, but over the last 12 months, they've also been going through what was called quantitative tightening. You remember with quantitative easing, the Federal Reserve had taken their balance sheet, printed a bunch of money and elevated their balance sheet up to $4.5 trillion. Well, over the last 12 months, they've done what's called quantitative tightening, where they've started taking that money out of the system. And as a result of lowering their balance sheet, what they've done is is they've taken $700 billion out of circulation. And so that's what's created this liquidity situation in the overnight lending markets. There just hasn't been enough money to go around, and it's not because the system's about to collapse. It's simply because over the previous 12 months, the Federal Reserve has taken out too much money. And so when you hear that they're putting in, you know, 50 or 100 billion dollars, well, they're only doing that to compensate for that 700 billion that they took out. So it's not really a big deal at all. And whenever people start talking about a collapse of the banking system or the Federal Reserve going bankrupt or the Federal Reserve's balance sheet being insolvent, you can rest assured that that's never going to happen because the Federal Reserve prints its own money. Now, I know that's not an answer that you may want to hear, and I'm not sticking up for the Federal Reserve or defending them. I'm just reporting to you the way the system works. And since the Federal Reserve has the ability to create currency out of thin air, they will never go bankrupt, and they'll never have a liquidity problem because they'll always print the money to ensure there's liquidity in the system. Now, that doesn't mean we won't have runaway inflation that would definitely be the end result if the Federal Reserve printed too much. But but the fact of the matter is that they can't go bankrupt or insolvent because they print the money. Well, hey, Darren and John in Moore Park, thanks for the questions. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investible Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast.
1: All right, so now maybe it makes a little bit more sense why they do what they do. Um, and again, I think you guys got to understand when John and I talk about things that are – Federal Reserve related, especially if we get into some of the conspiratorial things and we end up, like, if we debunk a conspiracy, that is not a defense of the Federal Reserve system as being a good idea and something we should do. Or if we tell you how it works and we say, not only is this how it's supposed to work, but it actually works this way and this is what that means, that does not mean an advocation for retaining the Federal Reserve system. Uh, But the Federal Reserve System does work. People say it doesn't work. It's been around for over 100 years. The dollar is the most stable currency in the world. It really is. Is it perfect? No. Does it give a tremendous advantage to the financial elite of the people who names you will never even know? Yes, it does. Is there some level of conspiracy behind controlling the world through manipulation of, of the banking system? Absolutely. Does that mean it doesn't work? No, of course it works. That's how you get paid every damn do- Every damn Friday. Don't don't parrot stupid shit and don't blame the messenger for explaining something for you as though we are an advocate because neither of us are. Okay, so my segment today, I'm going to focus on my my opinion and understand this is my opinion. I, I, I'm going to tell you some facts as I understand them and how I developed this opinion. Um, but it is my opinion. I'm entitled to my opinion just as you are. However. Um, I try not to to really spend a lot of time on things that don't directly affect, as I call it, the temperature of the water in your pool. I have strayed further and further and further from political issues in this show over 11 years because I have determined in my fairly long life at this point that all of the shit that people get upset about have never actually affected me in my daily life unless I chose to allow them to. And that I have a lot more control over things by looking at my circle of control and working inside that circle. I was told last night, because of that stance, I am one of the world's leading crazies. That my opinion that um getting upset over politics is, is, is wasteful and posting a bunch of shit about who you should vote for on Facebook doesn't really change anything, and that you're more uh you're more better off if you focus on the things you control is literally the position of a lunatic. Okay, that you, you, and my question was, well, how is your position sane and my position insane? My position that focusing on the things you control is more important than the things that you are upset about is insane. Go ahead and explain it, and the guy couldn't explain it, of course. So understand that I'm coming at this only because I have received dozens upon dozens of emails of either copies of articles about it, opinions on it, etc., let me give you some of the opinions I've found, and I'll, and I, my opinion is not one that's been expressed to me by anybody sending me an email yet. Okay, I've seen a few people online that seem to have a similar opinion that I do, but most of the opinions go to one extreme or the other, which shows me when you have a, a propensity for opinion to go to the extreme, that people are working from a position of emotion rather than logic. So one opinion is. A damn cop killed somebody and was finally convicted for it, and that's the way that it should be. But the only problem is they weren't convicted in, in a way where they're to spend enough time in jail, and they were given favorable treatment because they're a cop, and she should be in jail for the rest of her life. That's one extreme. There's a lot of inaccuracies there. The other extreme is there are people that are very upset this woman is in prison at all because it was an accident. So she shouldn't even be in prison. It's terrible that this woman's in prison. To me, that's another extreme position. My position is that the charge of murder, and you have to understand something about a charge of murder in Texas. Texas does not have first-degree murder, but we do by default. If the charge is murder, and it's not second- or third-degree murder or negligent homicide or manslaughter, if the charge is murder in and of itself, It is equivalent to what is called first-degree murder in many other states. The then differentiator is it's either murder or it's capital murder. Murder carries a sentence of up to 99 years without parole. It can be a lot less. It can be a lot more. It depends on mitigating and aggravating circumstances, but certainly you can be convicted of murder without being capital murder, And you can end up in prison for the rest of your life. I don't know anyone old enough to face a murder charge that we expect to be breathing in 99 years. Okay? Capital murder does not mean you will get the death penalty. It simply means the death penalty is on the table and it has a higher minimum sentence if you're convicted of capital murder. So... The conviction of murder here is for first degree murder, even though we don't call it that in Texas. My problem with that my problem with that is that you have to demonstrate the person made a conscious decision to take the life of another person. That is one thing you have to demonstrate Now, mode of opportunity beyond a reasonable doubt that's all off the table here because she says, yes, I shot the man. Okay, so that's it. They did prove that she intended to kill him when she shot him. That's absolutely the case. But a first-degree murder or a murder conviction in Texas at that level would also have to be that you did so for some reason that is not reasonable under the circumstances. Okay. I thought I was in my own apartment and this man was in my apartment and he, when I yelled at him, he didn't do what I told him to do and it scared me and I killed him because he was in my apartment, to me does not meet the threshold for a first-degree murder conviction. Though people, the people that say, well, it was an accident and we agree and she shouldn't be in prison, no, that's not how that works. My understanding of the facts are she was, had been drinking, she was busy texting some dude about hooking up and having sex texts with him and not paying attention to what she was doing. She parked on the wrong level and went to the wrong house, and that was a mistake. When she got to the house, there's con- confusion as to how she got the door open. The, question, the answer to that question is, I don't know. The answer, though, is she did. Maybe it was never locked. Maybe she, Maybe that was, who knows? She said it was a jar. People say it wasn't. You weren't there. You don't know. The prosecution never even attempted to make the case that she knew she was at the wrong place. The case they made is she should have known, and there were other options other than shooting the man. I think those are both reasonable assertions. To me, that still does not rise to the level of first-degree murder. To me, it would rise to the level of, at minimum, negligent homicide. And at maximum, probably a good solid case for second-degree murder, even if you didn't know you were breaking into somebody else's home while armed and intoxicated and carrying a weapon. Because those are all other crimes. So if you kill someone without malice, in other words, I didn't go to try to kill John. I ended up in a situation where I killed somebody due to mistake, but I was in commission of other crimes or negligence, sufficient negligence, I can be convicted of second-degree murder. And my personal belief is, the maximum charge that should have been sought by the prosecution was second-degree murder. That's, again, I'm, I'm my opinion. Additionally, I will tell you that the original indictment was for manslaughter. The, the prosecuting uh, attorney sought an indictment before the grand jury initially for manslaughter. There is people saying that the grand jury upgraded the charge to murder. That's not how a grand jury works, okay? That is not how it works. You don't go before a grand jury, ask for manslaughter, and they say, no, it's murder. That is not how it works. The prosecutor, after the original indictment was issued for manslaughter, Upgraded the charge in front of the grand jury to murder and managed to get a go ahead from the grand jury to try the case for murder. A grand jury simply says, You have proven there's enough evidence to warrant a trial, not guilt or innocence. And grand juries don't upgrade charges. I don't know where that came from, but that is not how a grand jury works. I can tell you for a fact it's not how a grand jury works in the state of Texas. Um, if you can tell me somewhere else what it does, fine. I would have a hard time believing it. Okay, So they got the go-ahead for a murder trial, and I am actually relieved, even though I think the charge was excessive, that they got a conviction. I was very concerned that had the judge not advised the jury that they could convict on a lesser charge, which the judge did, fortunately as well. That if they had not been given the option of convic- convicting at a lesser charge, which in Texas, a jury can't do that unless it is directed by the court or the prosecution itself. We are seeking a charge of this or this. The jury can then find guilty in one and not guilty on the other. But if the prosecutor goes for one charge and the judge, judge doesn't give a directive, they can only judge the charges given. And if you would put me on that jury, and you had asked me for a first-degree conviction of murder under my understanding of the law, it would have been very difficult to get a guilty verdict out of me. The mitigating circumstance that makes this where I think in the end, regardless of the conviction, we got something close to justice. A non-capital murder charge in Texas, because we're not as clear and concise on first-versus-second-degree murder as some other states, has a wide range of how long a person can be sentenced with a minimum sentence of two years and a maximum sentence of 99 years, even when it's not capital murder. The sentence was 10 years, and what they said is she'll probably do five. And this is where people are freaking out. Okay, her negligence, her negligence, her failing to pay attention, her decision to shoot somebody with the intent to kill When standing in a doorway where in Texas you do not have a duty of retreat, but at some point don't you look around and figure out what's going on? Her negligence, the fact that she chose to drink alcohol while carrying a gun, the fact that she was distracted by having conversations about going to have sex, all contributed to a poor decision to go to the wrong place and kill somebody. There has to be a consequence for that. There must be a consequence for that. If I did that, I would go to prison too, and I should. That is a mistake. I did not want to kill, I didn't go to, to, to that house thinking I'm going to kill somebody. But if you go to a place and you kill somebody and you weren't supposed to go there, there is some criminal activity. And five to ten years is not insignificant. Additionally, The family of the man who was killed feels the sentence is just. I don't think that you have a higher opinion in in value than the opinion of the family of the deceased man. I don't think so. And it wasn't like they were estranged. They loved this man. They were joyous about the decision. But members of his own family said publicly, I forgive you. And a lot of it made of the fact that the judge hugged the officer after sentencing her, but so did one of the man's relatives. So it seems to me that in this case, as tragic as it is, we got a decent result from a terrible situation. And I'm able to make that termination because I don't worship at the feet and lick the boots of police officers, nor do I despise and hate all of them. I do want to say something for the people that kind of feel like, well, this is good, this is about right, and finally a cop got convicted, in my opinion, and I think I'm on solid ground with this, a police officer was not convicted of murder here. A private citizen was convicted of murder here. And this does nothing for the double standard where officers involved in shootings that should have never happened get away scot-free, like the bitch in Oklahoma that murdered an unarmed man with his hands up, pressed up against a vehicle, and shot him cold dead in the middle of the street, on camera, and was found innocent. I also believe because another prosecutor was so stupid as to seek a murder conviction instead of at least going for something like a secondary charge of manslaughter or reckless or negligent homicide or something like that. In that case, they didn't seek any lesser charge, and that made it worse, okay? But this is not a police officer who shot somebody while on duty who was found guilty of anything. This was an off-duty officer who then became a private citizen. And while a lot was made of the defense that she was a cop, in the end, you don't get judged that way. I believe, and this is where I think we do not have justice in this country. Had this officer been sent to this apartment by mistake, let's say by an error in dispatching, and everything else happened the same way, and the only difference was she wasn't drinking, and she wasn't on duty, and she knew that she was in somebody else's apartment, and she shot the man under the exact same circumstances, I would have actually found that to be worse and more likely to be a valid murder conviction as a juror. And I don't think she would have even ended up in court. And if she did, I don't think you would have got a conviction. I went there to do my job. I gave the man a lawful order. He did not get down on the ground when I told him to. I was fear for my life, so I shot him. Cry, cry, tears, tears. Look as small as you can. Get away with it. Happens all the time, especially with female officers. You don't like it, I'm sorry, it does. And I've had plenty of police officers email me and tell me that's exactly the formula that they use when they have a defense attorney trying to get a female officer off on a shooting conviction and that it works almost 100% of the time. So I don't see this as a cop being convicted. I see this as a private citizen who made a terrible error in judgment being convicted and, yes, getting... A reasonable sentence. And I'll also tell you this, those of you that don't think it's enough. This is not you or me going to prison for shooting a person. This is a well-known, pretty young blonde woman being sent to Texas State Prison for at least five years, if not ten years, as a police officer who shot a black man. Five years for her will be like 15 for most people. They will not be easy years. She will spend almost her entirety, I would expect, in administrative segregation, surrounded by the worst of the worst, the scum of the scum. Uh, She will be at risk even with that of being killed while in custody. This This is not anything light. She's convicted as a felon for life. She will never be a law enforcement officer again. She will never own a gun again. And the best that she can hope for is, you know, five to ten years from now, stocking shelves at a Walmart. Don't think that she got off light. And I don't, the other thing is, I don't believe that this woman wanted to kill somebody that day. I think she made a tremendous error in judgment. But I don't think just because it was a mistake means that you're not liable for the death of someone. Because, yeah, she's going to do five to ten years. He's gone forever. And that type of action cannot go unpunished. That's my opinion. You don't have to agree with it. And guess what? We won't be talking about it anymore because it really doesn't affect your life. But I do think it is a good lesson in how to logically analyze something without bringing your emotion into it. Because this is what happened. She's a cop. I don't even care. See, that's the thing. I think we should judge people based on the situation that they're in, not what their title is while they're doing it. That's actual blind justice. With that we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, remember you can always support the work that we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's t s p a z.com. I got a book for you today for my item of the day. And if you have kids, you got to get them this book. And if you know I mean, any guy would love to read this book too. It's called The American Boy's Handybook: What to Do and How to Do It. It was made in the, it was originally published in the 1890s. And I first learned about this book in 1997. A friend of mine named Kurt, who I worked with at uh, Lockheed, had an original copy. It was kind of tore up a little bit and all, but it was, it was con- in- intact. I tried to buy it off of him. And I didn't have a lot of money in 1997. And uh, you know, I offered him kind of a stupid amount of money, and he didn't want it. He was not interested. He kept it. It was something he really valued. I think it was his grandfather's book. And then I found out later on that it's, you know, since it's so old, it's, it's in the public domain now, so it's been reprinted. And you can get a copy, you know, a brand-new copy of the old book. This book should make the heads of libtards and safety police and helicopter parents go and explode. And that's reason enough to get a copy. It tells you how to do things like kill animals and make taxidermy mounts. It tells you how to make weapons, like how to make a slingbow so that you can kill those animals. And a slingbow is really cool. It tells you all kinds of stuff. It tells you how to make hot air balloons that will float up in the air by using real fire. It tells you how to make real fire. And guess what? Back in the 1890s, people bought a copy of this book, handed it to a 10-year-old boy, and said, Go have fun! And our society was capable of doing shit in the 1890s, and we were capable of doing shit all the way up through the 1980s. And then all these people came along and started bubble wrapping a child before they could get on a swing set. And now nobody can do anything anymore. So restore the ability of Americans to do things. Restore the the concept of adventure in our children and piss off retarded people all at the same time by getting a copy of the American Boys Handy Book and giving it to a child. Get a second copy for yourself or give it to any dude. I think women will like this thing too. But this is the thing, like, your, your guy that's like 20 to 30 years old is going to love the hell out of this. Your guy that's in his 40s like me that never heard of it is going to love it because I'm like, this is how I grew up. What happened? Yeah, get this. And there's also the American Girls Handy Book, which I've never read. But I bet you it's pretty good, too. You can find out all about it on the website today, the com, And uh, you can scroll down, and you'll find it right under today's episode. Or you can go to tspaz.com, see the most current uh, reviewed items. You can see everything I've ever reviewed uh, in alphabetical by category. It's awesome. Check it out. And get this book. And I know we're still way out. I mean, it's October the 4th. We're way out from Christmas. But I bet there's some people in your life that would love a copy of this book. On that, I love Kindle as much as you do. Do not get the Kindle copy of this book. It's like one of those ones where people use like a scanner and scan it. It's awful. It sucks. Don't get it. And get the hard copy of this one. And with that, we uh, just remind you again, no matter what you buy, if you go to tspaz.com first, whether it's the American Boys Handybook, anything else I recommend, or anything in the world... If you start at tspaz.com, you help the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. The other way to help us out is become a member of the MSB. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more, and that's all I'll say about that one today. You guys know about MSB. It pays for itself, so why not become a member if you're not one already? And let's talk about our song of the day. As we wrap up, John Cougar, Mellencamp, John Mellencamp, Cougar, John Mellencamp, John Cougar, John Mellencamp, Call Me Cougar, Week. Um, like many of John Cougar's songs, this song is really got some severe political undertones in it. And like many of, of his songs, this song's actually very anti-American. Actually, a lot of people actually see this song in a much better light than John Means It By. Um, it's called Ain't That America. you know, Little Pink Houses for You and Me. It's one of his most famous songs. And I love this song, by the way. And I find it ironic that... In his own words, this is an anti-American song that he thinks he snuck by. That's, that's what John says about this song. Because the American dream is dead, and you know people always suffer, but it makes it sound upbeat even though he's talking about that. Kind of the same uh, tactic that um, Bruce Springsteen took with Born in the USA, though I think Springsteen's Born in the USA made a much better point than this song tries to make and fails. I actually think the fact that most of the people that listen to the song, even people that aren't exactly uh, flag-waving uh, zombies, still take it as a positive message of America, shows something about the failure of people like John Mellencamp to talk ill of the United States. And you might think, Jack, you talk ill of the United States all the time. I do, because I think we are better, we should be better than we are. And But my problem with the United States isn't the government is doing the wrong things. Or the government should do more things. My problem with the United States is the government should at least do less things. My problem with my country is primarily based on how big my government is. So my solution isn't, well, let's do more of this and less of that. It's like, why don't you guys stop doing shit all together? Where liberals like Mellencamp, what they want, they want more government. Now, this is not a defense of conservatism. It isn't. Trust me. A lot of the size and bloat of our government goes right at the feet of the Republicans. I'm coming from an anarcho-libertarian viewpoint today that I believe that what makes America have so much potential for greatness, even today with all our problems, is that in spite of how big and bloated our bureaucracy is, we still offer people more opportunity to become successful than just about anywhere else in the world. And then it amazes me that people like John Mellencamp put out songs like this. And I looked up his net worth today. His estimated net worth is at least $25 million, and I bet that's probably low. So he became incredibly wealthy. He became incredibly wealthy singing. A talented singer, no doubt, but he became incredibly wealthy singing. He's worth $25 million. In this song, he talks about there's there's winners and losers, and it ain't no big deal. And he talks about how some people go to work in the high rise, and they vacation down at the Gulf of Mexico as though they're the enemy. So let's imagine the guy that's built a real estate company who's got a net worth of $25 million. Started with nothing, much like John Cougar did. Started with nothing. And took risks and went out and acquired property, rented it, resold it, flipped it, whatever. And over his whole life, he built up a $25 million net worth. Why does John Mellencamp have a right to his $25 million that he got for singing and dancing and being made, being a made man by record producers. And the guy that built his shit from nothing through the acquisition, renting, and flipping of property not have a right to his $25 million. Why should the government take from his $25 million but not from our snowflake John Mellencamp's $25 million? Why? And there's no good answer to that. There's no good answer to that. And this is my viewpoint. When people like him speak, you know, you could live really, really good on half your income, John. If you think it's so important, then why don't you give away half of everything you have? Why don't you give away half of what you have as it comes in? Since the government won't tax you at the 50% or more you think rich people should be taxed at, why don't you tax yourself... And why aren't you worth $12.5 million instead of $25 million? And how many vacations did you take down at the Gulf of Mexico yourself? While well, these people you're so worried about were living in their little pink houses. And we all know the answers to that. And this is the thing about celebrities with this mindset. They live in la-la land. They live in a different world. Well, they gave all those tax cuts to rich corporations. Oh, you mean like Sony Records and RCA and all the giant corporations? That made you rich. You mean those companies. Oh, you mean like the giant retailers. Because back when you were actually selling records, John, guess what? Guess what, buddy? Most people bought CDs and tapes. I know, I bought your tapes from giant real se- resale retail outlets. So you mean the companies that made you rich. There's a hypocrisy there. And I don't really blame them for it. Because celebrities like John Mellencamp... Celebrities like all of these actresses and artists, they live in such a world separated that when they talk about the wealthy and the rich, they don't even think they're talking about themselves. That said, you know what? Once again, John Mellencamp has gone for a song that puts America down that to me, and to most people who listen to it, even people diametrically opposed to me politically, think lifts America up. I love this song. See, this song talks about you know the, the young man with the greasy hair and the greasy smile. And he told him one day he could be president, but all those crazy dreams just came and went. Now he's just kind of a bum that works at a gas station. But that young man, he chose to work at that gas station. He could have been president, maybe not of the United States, but he could have been president of a car dealership. He could have been president of a real estate firm. Maybe he could have been president of a record label. People in this country choose how hard they work, how far they push themselves. The biggest thing that people choose that no one wants to talk about is when they quit trying. No one has to be at the bottom forever. But if you're going to allow people to to, to excel by merit, some will choose to be. Ain't that America? Yeah, it is. And I, for one, don't have a problem with it. As long as there is the opportunity to move up in the world, as long as the opportunity is there, then if you have a problem with the way things are, do something about it and start with yourself. And when you become successful, turn around, extend your hand, and help somebody up. Instead of telling everybody how bad it is, even though you got to the top. That makes this a great song to go into the weekend with. I hope you enjoy today's episode. With that, it has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
0: Amazing.